There are experiences that we can never communicate to others. We can translate, we can use narrative, we can use metaphor, we can tell our story, but we cannot convey the depth of how one is unexpectedly changed forever because of the experience, how one moves from one life stage to another, how one's orientation in life no longer works and one must find another, the change in one's goals and one's self-understanding, how one gets another new name. The Torah portion is about those experiences. If one has never experienced the pressure to perform, to confront one's demons and solitude and hopelessness, with no indications or assurances of whether one will have a future other than perhaps in one's dreams, one may be able to describe, but what is the usefulness of describing that feeling, that experience in conversation? Explaining how one's falling in love has changed one's life, changed one inside, how it feels, that wordless place of Silence, yet wanting to say a lot, but feeling it's fruitless and inadequate because it touches on the indescribable, the ineffable, on God. That's another one. Both of those experienced in these partial. The death of a parent and saying Kaddish for that year is another. The death of a child. What can we say? Coming up, the experience of being in the pit experience of being in prison and becoming unrecognizable to others and to oneself is another one. And as we reach this part of Genesis, this whole ending of Genesis, we get these experiences packed so closely together, incredible love, incredible rejection, incredible paternal and maternal bond, incredible breaking of that bond. The experience of having a mother who wasn't really the mother, a father who wasn't really honoring the role of father, incredible abandonment, the power of being blessed, the experience of expecting a blessing and finding out there isn't one left for you, the power of a contract, the power of learning that a contract has no force when one's involved with a cheater. And today, through more experiences, the experience of anxiety and self-doubt and hopelessness of letting everyone around you down, of not even being able to rely on the wholeness of one's own mind. What we today call struggles with mental health, as if we can find comfort in a category, an experience so utterly solitary that on the other side of it, one receives a new name, but doesn't always use that new name and the experience of Dina, a sexual encounter with no description, except that one's status is sullied. The youthful philosopher when he was young, Ludwig Wittgenstein famously said at the end of the Tractatus, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. It's a stark message indeed, for it renders literally unspeakable so much of human life experiences in particular. When Wittgenstein matured into a more well-rounded philosopher, he abandoned that 
He understood that language needs to be used and can be used in all sorts of ways. And yet, so often is woefully inadequate, especially to the uses that we seek to put it. Standing at a podium like this, many of you have been in my stead, participating in a genre that presumes the power of articulation and clarification, the Devar Torah, I sometimes feel that we should just be silent for five minutes in humility for a partial like today's. And I know that the Torah is calling us to talk about them, but I also think the Torah is naming them as on some level so profound in a changed awareness that we become a third party in the conversation, in these places of awe and terror, of yirah, of transformational experiences. And we live in a society of self-confession and personal narrative, yet there's a deep sense that for all of the confession, we are missing each other. Yaakov doesn't tell people about his experience of seeing the angels going up and down from heaven. Esau does ask, don't you have a blessing for me? but we don't get his explaining or confessing what life is like afterward, what that situation was like to another. There's no dialogue. There's no sharing. We don't have a diary. There's no interview and certainly no blog. Leah tells Rachel, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband, but we don't have her speaking about the experience of living a life of being unloved, a life that so many millions have shared throughout history, but virtually incommunicable to someone who has not known it. Yaakov doesn't speak of his wrestling match. They don't say the experience, and as Wittgenstein's quote was often uh, tailored to say, they don't even try to whistle it either. The words of the Torah are the experience. So we have an adolescent saying, we all know it, that no one knows what I'm experiencing. When people know exactly what you're experiencing. But there's an adult experience of knowing that one's experience truly isn't known by most unless those others have been there themselves. Depression, overwhelming fear, a parent who breaks their parental bond or trust, suicidal ideation, grief, addiction, unlovedness, and also in this partiot, true love, the experience of covenant, transcendence, and the real experience of the divine, the hidden that's all around us in the world. And these are the substances of these chapters of Breshid. And today, Breshid adds, as I mentioned, the experience of what seems to be sexual assault, to live through it, to experience it. One is twice violated, first in the act and second in the aftermath. The pain of speaking, the pain of not speaking, the lack of control over the events when one chooses either path a lack of control that repeats the violation of the event itself. We have no words from Dina at all. The Torah tells us that Shechem had taken Dina sexually, a word that means he afflicted her or he debased her. The sense of it seems to be that this is a rape, but the debasement in that tribal society, and frankly, in most human societies that have ever existed, would be true even were it consensual. It is an irony that the ayin, nun, he sequence here, afflict, humble, are the same letters that form the root of the word ayin, nun, he, to respond, to speak, to reply, to sing out loud in a chorus. 
and to answer questions as a witness during testimony. It's ironic because Dina has no voice in the Torah. We don't get to hear her apply. We don't get to hear her eyewitness testimony. We have no idea how Yaakov even hears of it, what words and from whom when the Torah tells us Yaakov heard that he had defiled his daughter Dina. But since the sons were in the field with his cattle, Yaakov kept silent till they came home. The woman who was silenced and victimized has no say in what happens next and how things spin out of control. One of the primary reasons so many who have tragically experienced sexual assault and sexual harassment do not speak up. In this case, her brothers engage in vigilantism and murder with no regard for her wishes. Rabbi Aviva Richman, the Rosh Yeshiva of Hadar writes this week that quote, the most devastating part of the story of Dina in this week's parasha is that the Torah does not share Dina's perspective. We have no idea if this was the rape of Dina or an encounter she desired. Interpretations over the past many centuries have gone in strikingly divergent directions, which just amplifies the extent to which her consent and her voice seem to be entirely irrelevant in the plain text. This gap is not surprising, but as inheritors of Torah, we must ask ourselves how we inherit this part of our Torah responsibly. Recent research on sexual victimization can inform our understanding of the power in seeking out Dina's voice in this story and also accompanying risks. In a feminist midrash by Carolyn Blythe in her book, she conveys the stigma embedded in Dina's silence as follows. Also, it says, he lay with her and humbled her and it does not say Dina screamed. Would you ever have thought that Dina wouldn't scream? Rather, she was like a mute, perhaps because of the pain and shame, she became silent and still. In this reading, Dina had no voice to scream when Shechem mistreated her, not only because of the pain and shame in the particular encounter, but because as a woman, she had been ignored and silenced for years. Dina's silence reflects a long history of stigma. Blythe points us to an interesting conundrum. The lack of Dina's words in Torah, the lack of her conveying her experience cannot simply be attributed to the Torah's patriarchy. That of course, Dina had a lot to say and certainly screamed, but men didn't find it worth recording. Rather, we are left with a painful and poignant Torah truth, speaking and silence both. Both ways damned, both ways real. I've been listening over these past years to accounts like you have finally shared with a kind of exasperation of incommunicability and hopelessness in the sharing of accounts of actresses and others like Christine Blasey Ford, Anita Hill, and her reflective account. Most recently, testimony in front of Congress the past week by Eliza Dushku, a long-serving actress in Hollywood, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Dollhouse, many movies, and what it was like when she was hired to be the lead actress in the series Bull, six-year contract, millions of dollars, and have the lead actor and producer of it repeatedly in front of 100 crew members, repeatedly on different days, help say how much he'd like to rape her in his trailer, and how he'd do it, and the 100 people saying nothing, not doing anything. What does it mean that if you show anything or say anything other than something very studied and practiced, something that maybe has toughness and sassiness, that you'll be labeled problematic and hard to work with. And thus far from controlling the consequences, you'll be the victim of them again, victimized a second time. In the case of Eliza Dushku, she testified before Congress 
she asked the actor to stop saying these things and just to continue working professionally. She found herself fired the very next day, released from her six-year contract. And since then, now as a mother of two in Boston, after a 15, 20-year career, she's working on her master's degree. Ashley Judd and others whose careers were ruined after refusing producers' harassment. Actresses who yielded, like the powerful Tandy Newton, who say she doesn't even get to say what is consensual or not, because others, women and men, co-opt the experience of her consenting to take her voice away from her about what it was like, what it means to her. They know what she was trying to communicate, even if she doesn't have the words. And so it's not as easy about the fact that I'm certainly not going to stand up here today, and I know you wouldn't either, and quote the rabbis. I don't need men's voices telling me what she felt, but it's not as easy as just replacing them with women's voices. Because these experiences in life, good and bad, just because someone else may want to give voice to it doesn't mean they have your voice as you fluctuate between mutinous and telling your story. If we've learned anything from listening deeply to the voices of those who have been violated, it's that many say they were too stunned to say anything. They couldn't believe that it was happening. They couldn't believe that no one was saying anything. Like Dina, perhaps because we are told that she was visiting the daughters of the land, they couldn't believe that other women seemed to be acting normally like Jeffrey Epstein's female assistants, Harvey Weinstein's female assistants, women crew members, and sometimes directors. Some of the harassers were feminist champions like Joss Whedon, creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What I have heard is that unless you've been in the position of being stunned into silence as one is violating you, and you look around and no one is doing anything, then you cannot understand it. And it's an experience that cannot be described. We are third parties to the telling, but cannot be conveyed and then the double victimization that when you do report it, one has no control of the consequences. Who will write the midrashes of it? Who will say what you really meant? And what will be the consequences of those who take it and run with it? The double victimization of living in the silence as well, though. So making it possible for the speaking, that voice is vital. Dr. Gaila Benchamal writes, becoming able to speak about one's shame and deconstruct it is a key process of shame resilience and why it is important to critically interrogate who can speak and be heard. What does it look like to seek out Dina's voice and experience in a way that interrupts rather than perpetuates ongoing stigma, shame, and the dangerous idealization of female sexual purity? Dr. Gala Benchamal has studied, Rabbi Richmond writes, how the decision to speak up and disclose can serve as a powerful intervention out of a cycle of self-blame. Based on extensive interviews, she writes, disclosing also allowed participants to combat the internalization of shame. Disclosing was more than a stigma management technique or act of advocacy. It was an act of silence breaking and stigma resilience, resistance, and rejection. And finding one's own voice and sharing a story is an act of self-expression that resists accruing the shame of silence or being misunderstood by others. The first step of disclosure that leads out of self-blame can be intertwined with that advocacy. And hence the message and title of Dr. Benchamal's work, quote, victims are doing it for themselves. Instead of a story where brothers or other outsiders swoop in based on their own sense of violation to avenge a silent sister, our focus shifts to how a person facing this kind of stigma can find their own voice in the interplay of silence and speaking. 
and be that third party who's listening <coughs> to allow them to take control of the ripple effects and thus reclaim dignity and resilience and a voice. I close appropriately with a woman's voice, Rabbi Richmond's. The Torah offers an account like so many in our own moment where women's experiences of a charged sexual encounter are silenced and invisible, leaving only an ongoing residue of stigma. It should bother us that we have no idea what Dina's experience was, whether or not she suffered a violation of her consent. And it should bother us that there are so many experiences of sexual victimization that remain a silent secret in our own day. We have to be wary of how others can project narratives onto someone who has been sexually victimized like the range of interpretations that judge Dina's character based on dangerous idealizations by the rabbis. Without sensitivity to the reality of this experience, Dina's voice is lost forever, but her silence offers us a challenge. It invites us to create meaningful context for people to speak of their sexual victimization and to honor the multifaceted pathways of resilience in the face of stigma. Shabbat Shalom.